0: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode, and you're listening to Recode Media with Peter Kafka, powered by Digital Media. Before we launch Recode Media as its own podcast, you may have heard Peter over at my podcast, Recode Decode. Here's one of the fantastic interviews he did for Decode. Let's listen.
1: Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by Digital Media.
0: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. This is our special weekly segment with host Peter Kafka, Recode's Senior Editor and Producer at the Code Media Conference. Joining Peter each week are some of his favorite movers and shakers in the media world. Peter, who would you chat with in the media world this week? This week, I talked to Albert Wenger, who's an investor at Union Square Ventures, which is well known for investing in properties right. like Twitter Twitter tumblr albert's invested in foursquare and some other interesting businesses and also he's got a very interesting perspective on the way that that venture capital should work and how how companies should structure themselves and if that sounds sort of esoteric he explains it in a much more coherent version than i'm doing right now. so he's a coherent venture capitalist he's a coherent and thoughtful venture capitalist that's unusual yeah it's like a unicorn that's why we're talking to him all right then I'm Peter Kafka, and I have a really cool job. I get to talk to smart people and then try to pass their thoughts off as my own. And what I thought I'd do today is is sort of skip that step and just bring a smart person on directly to talk to you guys. I meet Albert Wenger, and you are a partner at Union Square Ventures, one of the best known venture firms, I think, in the last few years. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, I got a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about, and and one of the reasons I wanted to have you here is I had a really interesting discussion with you in in Dublin. There's a lot of wine involved, and you have a take that's very different than a lot of venture capitalists that I talk to. But I do want to ask you some things that I think are the same questions I would ask a normal VC, which is, what's it like investing venture money in late 2015 when we've had this, is there a bubble, is there not a bubble discussion for what seems now like
1: years? Well, I've called it a bulge recently. I think if you think of a bubble, you think of something that can pop, sort of explosively disappear. I think that's what we had in the first bubble. And it happens with pretty much every big technological change. You get a very quick, fast run-up in stock prices, and then you get sort of a bursting of that bubble, and then you get a much longer period um, where that technology actually has its long-term impact on society. And we're in that much longer period. And that that sort of pattern, Uh, Colota Perez sort of identified that pattern across many different technologies as kind of what she calls the installation phase, which is the bubble phase, and then the deployment phase.
0: So just to break that up into pieces, yes, prices of companies may be higher than they should be, but when they come back down to earth, there won't be a crater.
1: Exactly. So during that deployment phase, you can still get ahead and fall behind. You know, Prices are never exactly what they should be. I mean, that would be a strange expectation. So sometimes they're a little ahead, sometimes they're a little behind but you won't see the kind of crater. And that doesn't mean that there won't be some companies that won't succeed, but you won't get the sort of kind of massive, you know, everybody's down 90% or everybody's closing shop. You know, I don't think you'll see that.
0: So if, if you're old enough, like I am to remember uh, 2000, sort of when that bubble burst, there were a lot of people out of work. Initially, there were a lot of people who took their money from their busted dot coms and went to cooking school, I remember it was a big deal. And then eventually, there's just a lot of unemployed people. Um, you're saying when
1: some of these companies come down in value you're not going to see that ripple effect through society. I I don't think we're going to see anything nearly as dramatic. I I think, in fact, much of the correction is already happening. So uh, part of what happened was that, you know, private markets is always fairly hard to get a read on valuation. They're pretty opaque. Uh, Deals have preference. Deals may have structure on top of preference. And so what's happened is a bunch of these companies have gone public, and there it's all common, and, you know, shares trade freely, and so uh, price is found. And I think what's happening—the so the private investors are basically are overvaluing uh, these companies, or, or putting a higher
0: price on them, and then they come to the public market and and, and Wall Street basically says, th- "No, these are worth less." Th- that's kind of what's
1: happened, and and so now people in the private markets are correcting for that. And so I think, like with anything else, they won't correct to pitch perfect; they'll correct sort of overcorrect, and then that's why it's sort of a constant oscillation around some middle and. What that means for us, for instance, as investors, coming back to your original question, is that we try to have roughly the same pace. You know, we don't hurry up when we think things are going well, and we don't slow down when we think things are going poorly, because what's good and bad will only be apparent in retrospect. It won't be apparent in the moment. So, you know, 2008, we invested a lot, and we have some great companies from that time period where we invested in 2008. Twitter, I think, is your your biggest hit from that era, right? There's Twitter. Companies like Twilio are in there. So it's just, in our perspective, it's, you can't time this market and um, probably so you can't you keep, time any so market. So you
0: can't, it's not a matter of you looking around going, whoa, these prices
1: are out of whack. I'm going to sit on the sidelines. No, we look at prices on a deal-by-deal basis, and, you know, we've kept our fund relatively small, so that means if there's something that we think is a great company, but we're just not comfortable with the price, we don't feel compelled to then pay it. So you're saying, look, we will slow and steady and we'll just keep doing a handful of deals. That said, like I was
0: going back and looking at at one of your older uh, posts. You've got a a cool blog slash Tumblr called Continuations. You should check it out. Uh, And in 2012, you were saying, look, these prices don't make sense. They're too high. It's going to be a problem for the VC business. So you've seen this for years. And I guess maybe you
1: just sort of answered my question. You just keep going ahead regardless of what the market does. Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, Clearly, when I said this in 2012, I was way too early, and um, we went for another couple of years with prices increasing relative to what I thought where the businesses were. And the thing is, sometimes people think that that's irrational, but it's actually quite rational on behalf of the individual actors, right? So it's not like any one person is acting sort of irrationally from their own perspective there are lots of incentives to want to be in good deals. And and so people will sometimes pay significantly ahead and they say, look, you know, a year from now, that price is going to look good. Uh, So, I think in these kind of markets, you can't avoid a certain amount of seesawing around what the actual path is. What's more important, though, I think, is to focus on the fact that there is an actual path and that there is a massive transformation of all entire industries and uh, societies happening as a result of the deployment of this technology. So if you think about education, for example, the bulk of schools still work pretty much the same way they did pre-internet. So there's still a huge amount of change that's yet to come. And I think that's the more relevant part. The to premise focus on. is
0: what is, what could be the impact both for society and then because you're a financial investor financially if
1: if some of this stuff works out forget the pricing of it day to day. Exactly. And and I think that's the important part to focus on. I I think that any obsession on day to day pricing in the venture world is sort of to some degree misguided because what this really is about is what is the long-term change that we're investing in. And I think the long-term change that we're investing in is going to play itself out over many decades to come. It's not like, oh, the internet is done. It's quite the opposite.
0: Let me ask you one more valuation-y question, maybe a return question. So you guys, Union Square Ventures, and I, I can't remember exactly the timing of sort of when you came on, but basically Union Square put in some money into companies like Tumblr, like Twitter. Zynga was another big hit, all sort of two thousand six two thousand seven, two thousand eight a lot of those things returned in the last few years, and you basically just had an amazing run sort of that's one of the sort of top results in the venture business and you, you since then you've been much more active as an investor at union square so what's it, is do you feel pressured to sort of match those returns? It seems like the sports metaphor would be like you're following. I don't know. You're German, so I don't want to. I don't want to put you in a bad place. But maybe you're, you're following
1: uh, Michael Schumacher at a race. <laughs> did, I, did I get that right? He's a driver, right? <laughs> He's a driver. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. Um, no, not at all. I, I joined the firm in sort of 2006, and I'd spent time with Brad and Fred before. It's Brad Burnham and Fred Wilson. Wilson. So they had started the firm in 2003, uh, launched the first fund in 2004. One of the early investments was Delicious, uh, which I wound up joining, and which was sold to Yahoo in about nine months. Um, And so then I started to hang out at the USV office. I led our investment in Etsy. I led our investment in MongoDB, Twilio, Foursquare, a bunch of other companies that – Uh, have all done very, very well. And so I don't- You don't feel like you have to prove yourself? No, not at all. And what about as a fund? And and, and as a fund, I think everybody recognizes that the 2004 fund had a unique set of things going for it. So your investors do not expect you to replicate that? I I don't think anybody does.
0: Okay. Well, it's a a good problem to have. (laughs) Uh, as you mentioned, you write Delicious, which was an early acquisition by Yahoo. Yahoo, in the last few years under Marissa Meyer, has acquired a lot of companies, maybe about the same size as Delicious, one big one, Tumblr. And as we're recording this, I think Marissa Mayer just announced yesterday that basically she's going to spend another year trying to fix Yahoo. I think stock price is up about 100% since she joined. Right. Well, there's not a debate about why that's up. It's up because of things that she didn't do. It has to do with Alibaba. But if you were Marissa Meyer or Although anyone- Although I'm not
1: sure that um, for a lot of other CEOs, one would have that same discussion. I, I, I mean, I think, you know, the stock price is up. The yeah. Stock price is up.
0: Well, so so, so maybe, again, <laughs> maybe you've answered the question. Do you think that what, because sh- you follow that company for a bunch of reasons, do you think that that strategy has made sense of going out and, and buying lots of relatively small companies? I,
1: I actually don't follow the company. I, I um, don't really follow much of what the public companies do it's not all that relevant for what we're doing really? because, because aren't you in the aren't you in no, the business
0: of selling some of those companies to no, people not like at all.
1: yahoo I think we're in the business of finding companies that can be independent businesses and um, if everything goes well they will be independent businesses that doesn't necessarily mean they'll be public businesses but they'll be businesses that are cash flow positive and can support themselves that is the thing that we think about when we make an investment, we think about: Can this be a standalone business? Yeah, that's
0: the end goal, right? But but how many of your businesses get to that point? Right, a lot of them end up getting. A lot of your successful
1: businesses will be sold, right? Tumblr is a successful. Well, the for successful businesses will be bought. Um, things that will be sold are things that are not successful.
0: All right, well put. So you're not paying attention to Yahoo, and you sort of focused on. Your portfolio companies, and you don't really spend time thinking about, well, would this, is this something we could sell off to Yahoo? Is this something that Google might want to buy? Is this something
1: Facebook would want to acquire? No, I think the, the primary set of questions are, what does this business need to do to get to the next stage of its growth? I think the question of acquisition comes up if there's inbound interest on something, or if there's a problem, and where MA may look like the possible solution.
0: And I know better, you're very discreet,
1: so I know better than to ask you about where Tumblr fit into that category? Um, I think Tumblr was doing quite well uh, as in terms of growth. Uh, but the company was not building the revenue side of the business fast enough. And Tumblr is actually a pretty expensive business to operate because um, they have a huge amount of traffic and a pretty big infrastructure bill. And so uh, the, the trick is to make those lines cross. And that means you've got to invest in both the product and building the business side. So I think that, you know, I actually think it was a very smart acquisition on Yahoo's behalf because Yahoo had the business side and Tumblr had the traffic. So I don't, you know, I have no idea. I haven't followed how well this has worked out for them. I don't spend a lot of my time because it's my time is spent with the companies we work with actively day to day. Um, But I think at the time, I thought that deal made a ton of sense.
0: That's much more than I thought I would get out of you. I thought you were just going to sit there mute staring at me until I got to my next (laughs) question. Um, And on that note, for one second, I want to tell uh, you and everyone else who's listening to this about Code Media 2016, where you can hear interviews just like this. We have an amazing lineup of tech and media leaders who will join Kara Swisher, Walt Mossberg, and myself on stage. You should join us February 17th and 18th, 2016, in Laguna Niguel. It's in Southern California, right on the Pacific. It's really nice. As we explore the intersecting worlds of media and technology, you can view the full lineup and register at recode.net slash events. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here is, like I said, you have some opinions that are not shared by some VCs. One of them, for instance, is you're you're very interested in in companies that are called a benefit corporation or public benefit corporation. And I think if we were on stage at a Republican debate, someone might even accuse this of being sort of a socialist business idea. Can you explain what a benefit corp is and, and
1: how that works in today's world? So, Public Benefit Corporation is an alternative charter uh, that's available in many states, including in the state of Delaware, um, that's alternative to the Inc. Charter. And what it allows a company to do, it allows the company to, in its charter, say that in addition to shareholder value, we're also pursuing a specific social mission and that those two are pari passu with each other. And let's explain period two. I mean, everyone else knows what it is, just for my benefit. Meaning that one is not subordinate to the other. Um, it's
0: equally important
1: it's to make equally money important. as to yes.
0: do something else. Does it have to be a specific, you have to lay out what that well, goal you is? Well,
1: you, you have to state what your what your social purpose is. So, I want so for instance, the in the case of Kickstarter, it is to um, foster the creative arts. So. And Kickstarter is a Union Square Venture. It is a Union Square Venture service.
0: Yes, uh, right. it, and it can be anything that you sort of decide you want. Could it be, I want to defend abortion um, rights, or
1: I want to stop abortion there's no technical test for it it's not uh, like the state of delaware is going to go test this but it has to be a broad based public benefit uh-huh. as opposed to saying i'm my benefit is the benefit of peter kafka right so but it's a
0: public benefit if, if I, again if i wanted to be cynical about it it's a do gooder right you're trying to improve something
1: other than than the investors uh, i would say it more generally as it's a mission when I first went down to Delaware to talk to the legislature um, and, the, and the bar association there about why an investor would want that, they said, well, why would you possibly want this? And I said, we meet a lot of people who start businesses because they have a mission. And we like mission-driven businesses, Uh, especially, you know, in the days of the internet, um, I think being authentic, I think is extremely important for a business. We invest in a lot of networks. We want the people who operate these networks to be good stewards of the networks um, for everybody who participates in the network, not just for the investors. So the way that often plays itself out is that the founders say, gee, I need, you know, board control and I need super voting shares because otherwise you're going to mess with my mission. And that's bad governance. So, what the Public Benefit Corporation allows is to say, no, it's okay. We we believe in your mission. You can put your mission right in your charter, okay? So, it's not going to be easy to muck with your mission because it's going to be right in the charter. But you're not going to get super voting shares. You're not going to get board control. It's There's going to be good governance. And the investors in the company can now actually also insist on the mission because what if the company goes completely off mission, right? So you've backed a company in part because you believe in its mission, and now the company goes off and does something completely different. This is maybe the third time I've heard you explain
0: it. I'm still confused, and I think maybe people listening are confused isn't the basic premise of any business to make more money and become more valuable, full stop. And if you believe in capitalism, you believe in the idea that everyone's motivated to do that. And then that lifts the entire society. If we're all trying to make our own individual businesses do better, collectively, we all get better. And things like the environment or whatever our individual missions are, get fixed along with that, or they get fixed because we make enough money to donate to those causes. Well,
1: I think that's the particular vision of capitalism that we have developed today. It's uh, if you look back at Many business owners um, going back, you know, 50 years, 100 years, um, for them, their employees were very important. Um, Some of them had causes that they embraced quite publicly. Um, This idea that there's only one thing, and that is shareholder value, and that's the one thing to focus on, that's actually, you know— Become more and more on people's mind, but it's not a traditional idea. It's a newish idea. It's not a newish idea in the sense that you know it's bu- been building over many decades. Right. But it's not you know, plenty of people have started for-profit companies that uh, they used for all sorts of and that's an important purposes. thing to stress here, right? The Benefit Corporation is a for-profit. It's not a non. profit It's a for-profit company. So and again, I, I think there's there's a there's a very important um, historic context. That I think one needs to provide, which is we used to have a strict division between for profit companies and not for profits. And you will find that there are many such categorizations in life. We have private companies and public companies, we have employees and we have contractors. We have created lots of categories. And why did we create lots of categories? Because we were living in a world of very thin information. So, if all you get from a company is a quarterly report or maybe an annual report and you get that three months after it and you get it on paper and it's hard to distribute, it makes sense to say, really, you got to focus on one thing, which is profit. And really, you are strictly a not for profit, right? Just like it makes sense to say, well, you are, you know, a publicly traded company and you are not a public, you're a private company. Now, with the internet, what it has done is it has reduced the price of disseminating information to virtually zero, basically to zero. And what that means is that many of these old categories no longer need to exist. So, for instance, let's talk about public versus private company. The real distinction should be how much information are you disclosing? Are you disclosing a lot of information or are you disclosing very little information? If you're disclosing a lot of information, then people should be able to buy and sell your shares. But if you're not disclosing a lot of information, well, maybe there should be some limits on who can buy and sell your shares.
0: And that's getting a little blurry now when you get to these some, some of these companies that have raised a lot of money
1: and are private, but are still... A, we just had this with Fidelity, sort of... Right. And we can come back to that in a second. But coming back to the for-profit versus not-for-profit, now, one of the trade-offs of becoming a public benefit corporation is that you commit to a much increased level of transparency. But what's but, So, so is... you can disclose, like Kickstarter, for instance, just did a massive disclosure about the funding history of projects, which projects have succeeded, what percentage of projects have succeeded, etc. So now, what that means is, uh, as an investor in Kickstarter, you can make a decision whether you feel Kickstarter is making the right trade-off for you between shareholder value and their mission. And if you don't think they're making the right trade-off, you now have two choices. You can potentially sell your shares to somebody else, or you can actually go complain. You have what Hirschleifer calls voice and exit as options. And so that is a more interesting model in the world of rich information than to ex-ante put things into categories.
0: Because I think, and again, I'm just thinking of people that I talk to who are not as smart as you, including myself, when I talk to myself, think, all right, look, shouldn't... You talk to yourself a lot? A lot, yeah. It's not usually very effective. Look, what is wrong with the model we have now where you say if you're a for-profit corporation that clarifies things in your head because your job is to go make more money for the people who own the company and good comes out of that. That's a myth. Mark Zuckerberg it's a myth. is going to give $44 it, it, billion dollars away to do whatever that, he wants to do. The idea that
1: it's clear what a for-profit company needs to do to maximize profit is a complete myth because uh, take Amazon as an example. You know, um, there are many shareholders who have said, oh, you know, you know, all these investments in infrastructure, they're silly investments to right. just return more money to shareholders. Like, there's not even agreement on what it means to maximize shareholder but value. But you're having a debate about how to get there, but the goal but you're is you always the same. having a debate. Right. So, but, so you, you're having at least a debate, should you pay your people more to retain your people better? You're having a if debate, you're a non- should you care about the environment because non- your customers live in that environment? But if you're a nonprofit, you have a different goal. It's not to maximize
0: shareholder value, right? It's to affect some other change. It's a specific thing that's not about... Making I, I just, I question the idea,
1: which is sort of implicit in the, in this question, that people can't make trade-offs between multiple different goals. Running a business, you're constantly making trade-offs. And the idea that there is a clear way to understand how those trade-offs are really going to burn down to a single number, that is a complete fiction. And we have created that fiction with this focus on a single number like EBITDA and then shareholder pr- share price. And and that is what my point is a fiction. A business is a very complex thing. And as an investor, whether you buy or sell a share, the more information you have about the business, the easier you can decide whether you should hold it or sell it. And that includes how much time the business is spending on pursuing a particular mission. If you think the business is misallocating resources, you can sell the shares. And what's most and the same is and that is no different from uh, some people selling Amazon because they think business is investing too much in infrastructure, and other people buying the shares because they think he's investing just the right amount. So
0: what's interesting to me about this is this is no longer a theoretical debate. Kickstarter is a benefit corporation. Warby Parker is another one, correct?
1: Uh, I'm not sure whether Warby Parker has changed But they intend their, um, to, I think. Is... I
0: don't know. All right. Etsy is a company you're involved with, went public, and
1: they are as well, correct? Etsy is certified by B-Labs. So part of becoming a public benefit corporation is that you have to choose some disclosure standard. So the idea is you want to pursue both profit and emission. You have to be more transparent. And so there are different disclosure standards you can pick. Um, B-Labs provides one of those disclosure standards and a certification that goes along with it saying you are, in fact, disclosing everything according to their standards. Etsy right now is a BLAPS certified corporation.
0: So it's not a full-fledged
1: it benefit ha- it corporation. It does not changed its charter.
0: And we don't know whether they're going to sort of end up embracing that or not. Because that's one of the key questions, right, is could you be a publicly traded company? Kickstarter has the benefit of being private. They can, I guess, experiment with this idea. If you're Etsy or another publicly traded corporation, um, it seems like you might be really constrained from being able to, to try this out.
1: There's a pipeline of other companies that are venture backed that are public benefit corporations. Alt School is a good example of that. Which has raised a lot of money. There is absolutely no reason why a PBC can't go public. So this is going to happen, and this will happen. This is going to happen.
0: And what do you do? Th- do you think one that those companies will be initially sort of penalized by shareholders for having this structure? And say this is too funky for me. I can't get my head around it. We're gonna we're gonna reduce your valuation by twenty five percent just on that basis alone.
1: It could well be the case. Um, the public markets uh, do strange things all yeah. the time. So it could also trade at a premium when people go, "Wow, that's a new thing, and I want to have some of it."
0: And, 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 but you think this is going to go from being a novelty to a thing we're going to be sort of familiar with in a couple of years? I believe so. A couple of years could
1: be a decade plus, but yeah.
0: All right. Well, we'll come back before a decade's over to have that discussion, but I find this fascinating. So, and if you want to read more about this, check out Albert's blog. Other things that you can find on Albert's blog that are fascinating are his views. One was interesting to me. You brought up about privacy and security. You wrote it in the wake of uh, the Paris attacks. Unfortunately, you can probably write about it near nearly weekly. And I want to just call up what you said here because basically, you we were talking about you were saying that you don't think you need a trade off between security and privacy. Here we go, quoting you. We also have to let go of the mistaken idea that individual privacy and government secrecy are necessary for democracy. I think most people would read that, and alarm bells would go off, and they would say, "I don't know if you're a socialist or or something else." I keep using "socialist" as a derogatory term, but you scare me. We do believe in individual privacy; it's crucial. Well, explain what you're talking about. So, and, oh, before we get to that, what are you doing writing about this stuff? You're an investor. Why Why are you wading into this?
1: For starters, um, I think these are some of the most critical issues for all of us to think about, and uh, tech companies are at the heart of this. So, I think, for instance, tech companies were hurt tremendously by the NSA operating in a way that undermined the relationship between tech companies and their customers, um, and also the ability of tech companies to operate overseas. It's very different to say, I believe that we should not have done this uh, secretly, that we should not have a secret FISA court. But then you don't necessarily need to throw out the whole thing. Um, So why is it possible that LinkedIn makes such like, outrageously good suggestions for, like, you probably know this person, and you probably know this person, and Facebook does the same thing. And, you know, Facebook knows uh, when women are pregnant before they know it. Amazon knows it, you know, based on just behavioral patterns. And and so... This when, when you say it like that, it creeps us out. But day-to-day, we're, we're okay with we're, it. We're, we're, we're totally fine with it. And um, my point is, if we're fine with... Um, Facebook and Google and other companies knowing that. We should really also be fine with using that to fight crime and terrorism. And we shouldn't deny ourselves that very rich analysis of networks and of metadata. But we got to do it in a way that's compatible with democracy. And so you can't have a situation where people are being dragged in front of court and saying, we have secret evidence on you that you have no access to. We can't have agencies that don't have supervision. We can't have programs that are overly broad beyond what we would need to do sensible, intelligent metadata analysis. So I think... Where we got off on sort of the completely wrong foot in this whole is that the government decided we're going to do lots and lots of secret programs. We're not going to tell the citizens about it. We're not going to even tell the companies about it. And so I'm grateful that Snowden sort of came out and said, this is all the stuff that's going on uh, because that forced a debate. Unfortunately, we're not having the right debate, which is the debate should be not about putting backdoors into encryption. Um, I would like my bank communication to be my bank communication and not hijacked by somebody because then now it's going to cost more money to fix that. Um, But I think there's a legitimate question that needs to be discussed. If Facebook can be so highly predictive of certain things, if, if Google can be, if Amazon can be, if Twitter can be, then why are, should we not use that? Um, is there no way, do people honestly believe that there's no way to do this in a way that is compatible it, with uh, democracy uh, and with with a right traditional Are you
0: saying the government should build its own version of Facebook and its own models that give it as much intelligence as Facebook has? Or are you saying the government should be able to go to Facebook and go, you know a lot about what's happening for a billion people. We'd like access to that.
1: Yeah, and and I think it's more more the latter. And and it's it's more in in a way that isn't some secret backdoor into Facebook and that isn't like collecting everything on everybody, but that is sort of saying, here are some patterns, for instance, that we want you to look for and here are some patterns that maybe once we found, we may want to present to a court to say we want more information on this specific set of individuals. So I think there's a way to construct the process that is more in line with processes that we're used to in the offline world, right? So you and I, we lock our house, right? Now, that lock on our front door is good enough to keep out people who might just walk by and see whether the door is open or not. Certainly not good enough to keep out somebody who's entirely determined. And we have a process, for instance, for government to say, I need to get into Peter's house because I think Peter is up to no good. He's hiding a crime, etc. So I think we can replicate some of those same processes online, but we need to have an open discussion about what That looks like. And we can't have government running off and doing it secretly. But I think we're also overcorrecting if we say government can't have anything and any data collection by government is bad and any data, you know. So we have to find the right balance because the information is there.
0: Because it seems like there's a reflexive thing, and maybe it's all theater on both sides, but you've got the government sort of making these demands about encryption, which you know all the technologists say that's just ridiculous. We don't even think you're serious about this, uh, but not really offering any other sort of standard suggestions. When you see Hillary Clinton saying, well, we need help from Facebook and Twitter to help us fight bad guys, everyone
1: sort of laughs at that too. It seems like both sides really, there's there's zero common yeah, ground there's right There's been now. a breakdown, and, and I do think that that breakdown is the result of having done a lot of things in secrecy, and in, in, in ways that I would never support with secret courts and secret evidence and things that are fundamentally undemocratic and and um, undermine the judicial process. So,
0: but... Isn't part of it also about sort of, a, a, a at least maybe at least in modern times, a sort of just inherent distrust of government from Silicon Valley and technology folks and sort of a, the libertarian bent that says we should have as little government as possible. It's sort of a necessary evil, but we really don't want to do anything to help you guys if we can
1: it, That's part of it. Um, I think there's a, it doesn't just extend to Silicon Valley. I think there's a broad distrust of government. And and in order for us to avail ourselves of these benefits, we have to get back to reestablishing that trust. And that will take some time and that will take fixing other problems. But fundamentally, I do agree that um, this is an area in which government, law enforcement is an area in which government has to play a role and in which government can and should be playing a positive role. And I do agree that very much so that for a lot of the benefit of these new technologies to really accrue to society, it's not that we need no government, it's that we need or no regulation, it's that we need the right kind of modern regulations. I always use the cars an analogy. When the very first cars came out, they were really just steam engines put on horse-drawn carriages. And they were quite dangerous. And um, a lot of the early regulation was of the form, hey, can't go faster than a horse-drawn carriage. Um, they were of the form, has to have a man walking in front with a red flag um, to alert everybody. And part of that was fear of what could happen. Part of that was protecting the incumbents. Now, how do we actually wind up getting the car? It wasn't because of a sort of a libertarian paradise in which government got completely out of the way and everything was done by private entrepreneurs. It was because government eventually said, wait a second, these things are actually quite good. We should have more of them. And so we need rules of the road. And we we need to build roads. And so that's how we wound up getting the benefit of the car. And so I think the same is very much true for this new set of technologies. It's not that we need the old regulations. We shouldn't say, hey, Airbnb is a hotel. It's not a hotel. But conversely, we shouldn't say there's no regulation required either. We should figure out what is the right type of regulation for these new things. And so, for instance, one good example where, again, we have this weird interaction between privacy and transparency is one way that would be interesting to regulate uh, companies like Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, Sidecar, etc., would be by saying, look, you have to be much more transparent. And if you're really, truly transparent with what goes on on your network, then you have no intermediary liability. So, you know, if I rent from you on Airbnb and something bad happens in your apartment, um, you know, I, I, you have a drawer that comes loose and drops, you know, then if Airbnb had been very transparent all along the way and sort of said, nobody stayed there before, for instance... You'll be the first person staying there.
0: So this all, all sounds common sense, but it also sounds like we are really rowing against the grain is the wrong metaphor. But you're, you're pushing back against what seems to be received Silicon Valley wisdom, which is we praise disruption. Anything disruptive is inherently good. We all praise Uber the most because they weren't held back by government regulation. They just went and did it. And entrenched interests like the taxi guys or the hotel guys in Airbnb's case, those are necessary evils that we need to get rid of.
1: Um, well, I think there's a big fear among entrepreneurs. And you're saying no, no, no regulation's well, I think, okay. I think a big fear among entrepreneurs that if they say anything else, they're going to get bad regulation. So they'd rather have no regulation than bad regulation. So you push out to the side and know (laughs) they're going to come back to the middle. And sort of our view is that the answer to is not, well, it's going to be bad regulation anyhow, so let's have no regulation. The answer is let's, collectively figure out what good regulation of this looks like. It's never the answer that there's a Wild West, no regulation. All markets, in order to really flourish, need some minimum amount of regulation. That makes for the best markets. And so I believe in markets. I want markets to exist. I want markets to succeed. And so I want the right kind of regulations. Uh, That's, for instance, why we've been very outspoken pro-net neutrality, because we think that's a type of regulation that makes the market for internet companies work better. Uh, so it's a great example of where um, if you just let the existing forces play, because these are not competitive markets, these are markets that are either monopolistic or oligopolistic, you will not get the best possible market. Now, you're in the business of seeking
0: out, like you said in the beginning of this conversation, we'll wind it up here. You said we're looking for things where there's going to be lots of change, like the education market that really we haven't touched that yet. If you look at markets where technology has gone in, funded by VCs like yourself, inevitably there's a lot of change. A lot of people lose their jobs. And one of the other striking things, I think, about the stuff you write is you say, well, I do think about that when I'm making these investments and we should all be thinking about what happens to the people who get disrupted. We shouldn't sort of just shrug our shoulders and assume that someone else is going to take care of it. Does that factor into your investments? Do you not make deals where you think this is going to cost someone more than it should cost?
1: No, I I think we've stayed away from investments that are somehow um, absolutely commoditizing labor and are trying to push into existing labor relationships. So, for instance, so far we haven't – doesn't mean we might not find the right version of this, but we've stayed away from a lot of these, for instance, home cleaning services because it seemed to us like they were – trying to commoditize something that historically often has been a relationship. Um, they were trying to basically have the labor be commodity labor. Um, and that we've stayed away from because we we didn't think that was particularly interesting. Uh, but the broader picture, lots of stuff that we invest in displaces people and we're very well aware of that. But that cannot be solved by any one company. That cannot be solved by any one investor. That has to be solved by a broader social consensus. And here, I'm really speaking for myself, not for the firm at all. I'm a big proponent of universal basic income. I think that government, instead of running expensive programs like food stamps and subsidized housing, etc., should just give everybody some money, maybe every month or maybe as frequently as once a week, and uh, then let markets work. So, if- And this is what you were talking about when you said, uh, you get a quote here again, we shouldn't be
0: trapped in the belief that capital is scarce and that everyone needs a job. You're saying we could actually fund people's sort of basic living requirements, and we should.
1: Yeah, and we should. And that, it is, would that make... is
0: straight up socialism. That is a straight up European model. Not at all. Everyone who's listening to this yeah. who lives in America says, I'm done. I'm yeah. turning off the podcast. Uh,
1: you know, the beauty is that it's actually the exact opposite, right? It is allowing everybody to participate in the market. So if you don't know how you're going to feed your children tomorrow, or how are you going to pay for the roof over your head tomorrow, you're not a very good participant in the labor market for two reasons. Number one, you're going to accept really shitty jobs under shitty conditions. So you are basically contributing to things being driven further down. And you're not investing in yourself and your own capabilities so that you could be a much better contributor to the market. So I think if we want markets to work um, well, we have to make sure that the participants can actually be free participants in those markets. And so I think... The beauty of this is that the intellectual heritage of this idea in the US goes back to people like Milton Friedman and it goes back to founding fathers, Thomas Paine. Um, they thought about those things. Uh, none of them would be accused of being socialists.
0: I think Bernie Sanders would have a hard time saying this. But Albert, this is exactly why I wanted to have you on because I think this is so insightful, so interesting. Um, we're way over time. I promised I would get you out of here early. Now it's late, so I'm going to end it here. But again, we'll, we'll have you back. We'll talk more. In the meantime, you can read more about. All these provocative thoughts on continuations.com. Just Google your name. Just Google my name. Albert, thanks so much. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you enjoyed listening to this interview as much as I did conducting it, you should subscribe. You can hear more of this stuff. Catch up on previous episodes. Be the first to listen to new ones, all on recode.net slash decode. Kara Swisher is back on Monday to talk about everything that happened at CES. And I'll be here next Thursday with a really awesome guest.
1: Tune in then. This has been Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher powered by digital media for more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech media and politics subscribe to recode replay on itunes featuring candid conversations with leading voices like aol ceo tim armstrong goldman sachs's cio marty chavez the team behind the hit tv show empire shark tank investor mark cuban and presidential candidate hillary clinton they're all on recode replay